Mountain Community Church, and uh, so pleased to be with you this morning. This psalm that we're talking about today, Psalm 126, it contains in it one of my favorite word pictures in the whole Bible. And uh, maybe I'm not supposed to have favorites when it comes to the Bible. I do think this whole thing is worthwhile, valuable, good. Um, But there are things that resonate really with our hearts, right? There are like particular parts, different people, different, you know, there's a reason there's four gospels, right? They speak to different people and different times in their lives and all those sorts of things. Um, So I do have a, a, you know, some particularly favorite uh, phrases or word pictures or, or parts of these stories that we read in scripture. And in Psalm 126, we find one of my favorites. If you, uh, if you want to turn and uh, follow along with me in the Pew Bibles, it's page 887. Uh, if you wanted to turn there with me, I'm going to just read that, the one verse for me that stands out. So, so speaks so much to my heart. This is uh, verse 5 out of Psalm 126. It says this, Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Some translations render the passage, those who sow with tears will reap with shouts of joy. Can we just stop and rest with that for a moment? Like, if ever there was an image of hope embodied, I think that this is it, right? That our tears, our hurts, maybe our anger, that, that those things, which so often seem like they fall on dry ground and just get sucked up into the dusty soil or evaporated away by the scorching sun, that, that those tears could actually be a part of a planting, right? That somehow they could be tied up together with a bountiful harvest. Not just a harvest of anything, but a harvest of joy. Like a joy so big that we need new ways to express it. A joy that turns our hearts to singing new songs or even to shouting. This is a beautiful picture. It means a lot to me. Because you know, I don't know about you, but I know that in my life I have sown some tears. Right? Like there have been hard times. And while on some days I can catch myself... um, Believing that the very best thing that could happen is that those tears and those hard times get sucked up into the ground or evaporated by the scorching sun, never to be thought of or remembered again. Deep down, when I'm feeling particularly brave, perhaps even audaciously so, I let myself dream of something more. I allow myself to long for the special kind of joy that can only come on the other side of despair. And this is what our God does, right? I mean, it's not a coincidence that the central image of the Christian faith is a cross, is crucifixion, and all that went with that, right? The crucifixion was was one of the worst human inventions that, that has ever come into being, right? One of the worst things we had to offer. It was something that you would not talk about in polite company. And yet that thing, that horrific, ugly thing, something drenched in the tears of many, that thing is the thing that God chose to use to make way for the redemption of all creation, right? Crucifixion, torture, humiliation, shame, death, even such a terrible thing as that was not too terrible 
that our God could not bring something out of it that reaped a harvest of joy, of beauty, of life, of restoration. Friends, this is our God. Amen? So I I see in this one little verse in Psalm 126 a picture of the gospel, right? A, a, A message that no part of our story, no thing that we have endured or done is so ugly that it can't become a pile of manure to fertilize a harvest of beautiful joy, to create something entirely new and extraordinary. I could spend our whole morning uh, just talking about this verse in Psalm 125, but why don't we take a quick look at the rest of our psalm? It's part of a bigger picture, right? And there is more for us in that than just this beautiful picture of sowing and reaping. You remember, if you've been around for the, the rest of this series, that these psalms that we're reading, this psalm and the other psalms we've encountered, they are all a part of a series of psalms which are called the Songs of Ascent. And that these were songs that were sung by God's people as they went on their thrice annual pilgrimage journey to Jerusalem to worship. So these were the songs for the road. This was like the playlist or the mixtape, if you will, that, the, that God's people would sing and would recite as they went on this journey to Jerusalem to prepare their hearts to worship. And, and through them, these songs and these stories, they, they tell or they paint a picture of what it looks like to faithfully follow after God. And it's to prepare their hearts to enter into that worship, right? And not just, not just singing praises kind of worship, not just music or, or song, although that's one way that we worship, but worship as like a whole life activity of following after God. Right? So, so we've been exploring these psalms and we've discovered in them that there's this beautiful opportunity, not just for the people in that time and that place, but actually for us as Christians today to discover what it looks like for us to faithfully follow after God. And so in, and in these psalms, in the language that, that we've used for this, this idea of what it looks like for us to faithfully follow after God, the language we've used is discipleship. What does it mean for us to be disciples of Jesus? So this week, the big theme that we see revealed in our Song of Ascent is joy. Each of these songs have had kind of a big theme we've talked about. This week's is joy. I got excited because I love this psalm, and I started off by talking about hope and redemption, but this psalm is all about joy. And it makes sense that we took a little detour off the top because joy isn't, like it really isn't a thing in and of itself, right? Like joy... In, in, isn't this vacuous experience that happens all on its own? Joy is a byproduct, right? Joy is a, it's a result. It's the thing, joy is this thing uh, where if you, if you make joy your goal, you will never get there, right? You can't just go and like, you know, I'm going to find a joy and make your way to joy. But in the search, in the pursuit of, of meaning, of purpose, of, of beauty, of, of redemption, of hope, in those things, as we seek following after Jesus, joy is a natural byproduct. It's something that comes along, that springs up out of that. It's a part of the journey, not the end of the journey itself. So, so let me clarify a bit here, because I think many of us perhaps have heard the message, a message in the past about joy, a particular message in the past about joy, perhaps in the context of discipleship even, where we were told, either explicitly or implicitly, that joy is a part of the Christian life, which is true. We were told that joy is a part of the Christian life 
And that as Christians, therefore, we must be joyful people or else, right? That's like like the whispered thing or else, (laughs) right? If you're not a joyous person, maybe you've heard this. If you're not a joyous person, you are a bad witness for the gospel. I've heard that said before, right? What kind of, you know, why would anyone want to become a Christian if we're all dour and sad all of the time, right? Christians uh, are people of joy, so get your stuff together, those of you who are downtrodden and sad, and put on a smile. Like, I, I don't know if you've heard this before. I've heard this before, and I don't think that it's true. <laughs> Actually, I know that it is not true. This is where it's really important for us to understand that joy is not the end goal, but the byproduct. And his book on discipleship, exploring these Psalms, the Songs of Ascent, we've been following along with a book by a guy named Eugene Peterson, amazing pastor and theologian, uh, Bible translator. Um, and in his book, uh, he, put it, he puts it, he describes this kind of reality of what joy actually is and how we should kind of think about it um, in a way that offered me so much relief the first time that I read it. So I'm going to read it for you today as well. This is what he said. He said, joy Contrary to popular belief, perhaps, joy is not a requirement of Christian discipleship, but a consequence of it. It's, it's not what we have to acquire to experience life in Christ. It's what comes when we are walking in the way of faith. I'm going to read it again. So, so joy is not a requirement of Christian discipleship, but a consequence. Not what we have to acquire but it's what comes when we are walking in the way of faith. You see how that's a bit of a switch? I just want to be clear about that as we talk about joy, because I know some of those messages that we've heard before can be hurtful, especially to people that are in moments of despair, moments of hardship, and they're going, not only is all this bad stuff happening to me, but I'm supposed to be joyful, and so now this means I'm a bad Christian, and it makes it all the worse. I said, no, that grief and despair and hardship is also a part of the journey of being a Christian, right? The manure is a part of it. It's just that we have an audacious hope that God can bring out of that something good and beautiful, right? So, so if we are trying today to discover what this particular psalm has to teach us about being disciples of Jesus, it's important that we remember that this is not so much telling us about what we do, what are the steps we need to take, as this psalm is telling us about what we can hope for, about what we can long for, as we seek to live lives as faithful followers of Jesus. And I think that it intersects closely with some other concepts in Christian discipleship, which we began uh, talking about in our time earlier. I think it intersects closely with redemption. I think it intersects closely with hope. These are parts of our stories in Christ that we might hearken back to for joy. Gratitude is another example we see in the psalm. Gratitude at realizing what God has done, how we have been saved. This invites us into a deep experience of joy. I could talk around this a lot, but actually, let's look at the text. Okay, so Psalm 126. Uh, you'll notice we begin the psalm with a looking backwards, with a remembrance of joy. So verse one of the psalm says, "When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed." Now. If you're in your pew Bibles following along, you might notice there's some footnotes there. It's because the language here is a bit ambiguous. So it could also be read, when the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like those restored to health. The idea here is the same, though. 
They are remembering a moment when God saved them, a moment when God pulled through. There's some discussion, scholarly discussion, on what that moment specifically is that they're talking about in the psalm. Uh, It seems likely this is perhaps in reference to release from captivity in Babylon. Uh, But the idea is, you know, so there is this exile, and then there's the remembrance of when they were finally able to return home, when God delivered them. And it makes sense, then, that they describe their reaction in verses 2 and 3. Our mouths (laughs) were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. And they talk about then how other nations look to them and see with clarity that they were blessed. And then they repeat this idea, the Lord has done great things for us. We are filled with joy. Notice the language. They didn't arrive at joy. They didn't wander in the wilderness and find it. They are filled with it. It is bubbling up from within. This beginning section of the psalm is a remembrance of joy. That's where the psalm starts. They recall a time when they were actually filled with joy, born out of gratitude and relief and excitement of homecoming, freedom from captivity, all of those things from God's faithfulness created an amazing harvest of joy in their hearts. They're filled with it. And then verse 4 brings us into the present moment. And for whatever reason, it is not a moment of joy, right? Perhaps this is the result of just the mundane seeping in. What uh, turned them to gratitude before has become the norm. Or maybe they've experienced a new hardship. One theory is actually this was written during a famine. It could have been there. They're crying out, you know, we're starving. We need help, right? Um, But whatever it is, they're feeling beat down and crushed. And in this present moment, they offer up a prayer, right? A petition to God. They have an ask for God. They say, restore our fortunes like the streams of the Negev. God, you came through for us before, come through again. So the big picture here, they are remembering a joy in the past and then asking God to do the same thing again in this moment where they find themselves. They started by saying, God, I know that you can do this. You've done it before. We were in such an amazing place of joy for you. But what's implied here is that the place where they find themselves now, they are not overflowing with joy. And rather than feeling ashamed of themselves, because they should be joyous, they call out to God to move in a way that he had done before. They call out to him because they know that they cannot manufacture joy for themselves. I think this is the place, actually, where we, as modern people, can get really stuck. Because in an agrarian society in the ancient Near East, you can search for joy on your own for a while, uh, but you will quickly exhaust all of the options, right? But for us, there is a never-ending stream of entertainment and experiences each of which promises us that if we give them more of our time and our resources, they will give us joy, right? And maybe for a short time it works. Maybe that movie or that YouTube video, maybe it does push back for a little while the grief and despair and the sadness of our days. Perhaps it does work for some extent to bring us something that resembles joy. And so we keep chasing these things, leaning into them and on them, And the well, for us, 
never really runs dry. There's always a new thing to try. There's always something new. We look at the Israelites wandering in the desert for 40 years, anticipating the promised land, but we could very easily wander uh, for longer, right? To all of these kinds of places, seeking out the promise of joy that somehow always just remains just a tiny, tiny bit outside of our grasp. For God's people, in this psalm, it doesn't take long for them to exhaust their options and to realize they cannot make joy for themselves. They cannot be their own salvation. And so they call out to God, the God who led them into joy before. And rather than despairing at the inability to, to do this joy creation task on their own, this psalm immediately turns in a different direction. This psalm turns immediately to a picture of audacious hope. And this is where we find that picture of verse 5 we started today with. Those who sow with tears will reap with shouts of joy. Not in their own confidence, but actually in their need, in their asking, in their admission of their own inability. This isn't just a trite statement or an empty hope. It's rooted in the experience of verses 1 to 3, right? This is rooted in what they have known and tasted and seen rooted in the salvation that God brought them and the joy that overflowed from that experience. And that's been, I've been, you know, in the past week, I've been re- reflecting on this psalm and preparing to preach this sermon. I found my mind frequently returning to a really famous psalm, another really famous psalm, one that we've talked about before, uh, Psalm 51. It's David's psalm of contrition. After he had been caught in sin and called out in front of everyone, he experienced a, a, you know, a loss of reputation, I'm sure a piling on of shame, and he writes this psalm of confession. And in it, there's a prayer, right? There's an ask that he makes of God. And it's a prayer that is not entirely dissimilar from the prayer of Psalm 126. It's a prayer for restored joy. So let me read it for you. This is Psalm, uh, psalm 51, verse 12. David writes, restore to me the joy of your salvation. That's what he asks of God. So let me back up here for a moment. Joy is a byproduct of the life of discipleship. But stuff happens sometimes, right? We still live in a world where there exists the pain of sin and death and loss. And so the desire for restored joy the seeking out of restored joy, this is also a part of our journey as disciples of Jesus. There is is also a restoration of joy that is a part of the story, a part of the regular rhythms and cycles of what it means to follow Jesus. So the question becomes, how do we seek to live that out? How do we seek to walk in that particular part of this journey? And I think, like in the psalm, it begins with a hearkening back, right? It begins with a a remembrance. In Psalm 126, the author invites everyone to remember a moment of salvation. And then to allow themselves to long for God to enter into their current experience and bring that kind of salvation again. In Psalm 51, the psalm of David, he looks back to a moment of salvation. 
God, come, God came through in all kinds of amazing ways for David and his story. Here, he is longing for God to bring a restoration of that joy again through his salvation. And salvation is also the first joy of the Christian walk, right? For those of us who are Christians, we know that we have been saved by grace through faith. We have been delivered from the powers of sin and death. We have been given a new heart. We have been called worthy and beloved by the God of the universe and adopted into his family. So we, as followers of Jesus, can hearken back to the first joy of the Christian life, to the joy of our salvation. We can take intentional steps to remember it, to remember the joy that comes when we are delivered from the dominion of sin and welcomed into new life in Jesus. That is an amazing and joyous event. There are all kinds of things to hope for in that event, right? We, we have hope for the new life eternal that we've been welcomed into. And, and there's redemption, right? Our lives are made new. Our hearts restored, and there's gratitude for this amazing gift that we've received. And there's, there's an assurance that comes from being called God's children, knowing ourselves as his beloved. The experience of all of these things and the remembrance of them, all of that has an outcome, and it's called joy, right? Delight, celebration. By God's entering in, we can be filled anew. And something that's particularly beautiful to me is that Jesus has actually commanded for us to participate in a regular rhythm of remembering these very things, right? In a regular rhythm of remembering his great love for us, our resulting forgiveness, and it's through a practice, a tangible practice called communion. In the free Methodist tradition, we talk about communion as both a sacrament and as a means of grace. A sacrament, because it's something that Jesus has commanded us to do as his followers. And a means of grace, because we know that this is one of the tools that God uses in a very special way to move and work in our hearts. As free Methodists, we confess that the truth, that communion is not a somber and fearful practice, but is actually something that we enter into with joy and excitement. That communion isn't just something that we do. We don't communion. We celebrate communion. We celebrate communion, trusting that God can come and meet us anew in a very special place, in a very special way, each time that we come to this table. So I'm wondering this morning if we could do something a little bit different, a little bit different with our communion. I'm wondering if, as we celebrate communion this morning, if we could actually take a nod from Psalm 126 in Psalm 51. Like, like we're, we're, we are already simply partaking in communion. We're doing the first part of the psalm. We're doing that remembrance, right? We're remembering how, how Jesus' body was broken, his blood was shed for us, how we, and we're remembering how he moved in our hearts in the past to bring us into salvation. But I'm wondering if we can go a step beyond that to seek out in an intentional way a reminder of the joy that is found in that place. So one of the things that we do around communion is we prepare our hearts. We talk about preparing our hearts. We spend some time, we think, we reflect, we ask God if there are, there are things that he would bring to the forefront of our mind, perhaps things that we need to confess, right? This is in preparation. It's not just, oh, yeah, I guess here's the ways that I've messed up. 
We, we remember these things in preparation for receiving of forgiveness, right? Like that goes together. But we're invited to prepare our hearts. So the Corinthians talks about that. There's an invitation to prepare our hearts. And I'm wondering if today, as we do every time we do communion, as we take that time to prepare our hearts, I'm wondering if in, in that time of reflection and prayer, if you would be willing to add to that prayer, or perhaps on the end of that prayer, would you add the words of Psalm 51? Would you add that prayer, restore to me the joy of my salvation? And then we will take and eat, trusting that in Jesus there is a joy that can come that is deeper, fuller, and more meaningful than anything that we could craft for ourselves in our own pursuits of entertainment or whatever it might be. That there is a joy in our salvation that is a special kind of joy which can go down right to the roots of our hearts and sprinkle even the tears of our darkest moments, even the tears of our Lord as his body was broken and his blood was shed. And they will bring about a harvest of joy that goes beyond our understanding. Would you be willing to ask boldly with me this morning as we step out in obedience and remembering Jesus with the bread and the cup? Would you be willing to do that? Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening to the Blue Mountain Community Church Podcast. May God's word fill you up this week. God bless.